0: Thank you for joining us uh, for our Good Friday service. Uh, If this is your first time here, we are not always this sad. Uh, But uh, this is a special occasion in which we honor the sadness of this day uh, when our Savior was crucified. And so for the prayer that I give before the sermon, all I say is, Lord, have mercy. During... Jesus' last hours, as he hung on the cross, he was not filled with rage or resentment. But instead, he was found to be so full of mercy and compassion that he could see the two men hanging on either side of him on the cross See them and listen to them. And when one of them uh, called out for mercy, he responded immediately. He talked of something called paradise. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so for the next few minutes, as we look at this text together, I want us to consider this mercy that Jesus showed this criminal on the cross next to him, one who said he was justly facing the consequences of his deeds and Jesus's response to him, that merciful response that he gave. And so what we're going to be talking about for the next few minutes is, what is the pathway to a mercy like that? And the answer is suffering. The answer is suffering. So why did Jesus end up in this place? What kind of man was he that put him in this place? I want to share with you a few of the things that the scriptures tell us as we begin to explore this pathway of mercy that Jesus Le- leads us and led that man on the cross into. So one of the reasons that he was there is that he said things about himself that put him at odds with the government of the time. He, he said that he was the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. That was a problem because that meant someone else was in charge other than the people that claimed to be in charge. Another reason is that Jesus's life and his ministry and his teachings, not only by the way of calling himself the Messiah, but also through who he spent his time with, his teachings, his life, as I said, it turned around and tilted and twisted and knocked over the hierarchies of the day. He spent time with people who were lepers, untouchables, but he also spent time with corrupt tax collectors who were seen as complete traitors to their people. He also spent time with people on the lowest part of the socioeconomic ladder, such as prostitutes. by the sheer act of being with those people and being the type of man and the leader he was, he was upsetting the status quo of the day of who and where and how mercy should be shown and applied. Jesus was also a critic of his own faith, of his own religion and of the prevailing government, the Roman government, who would eventually be his undoing and crucify him. Jesus was very controversial in not only what he said, but also what he did. Here on the cross, we see him living out this scripture from Matthew 5 when he says this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These were the kinds of things that Jesus said, and he went about living those things out. And that was very upsetting to how people had come to understand reality, particularly the people with power, particularly the people that had the power to execute a man like Jesus. He didn't didn't get up there for just being a nice, kind person. So he's there, hanging on a cross, dying a criminal's death. And there were various reactions to this. Some asking for mercy, some not. I want to explore some of these in the text right now. Luke, uh, all these verses from chapter 23, verse 35 through 38 The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. These religious leaders Uh, that are featured in this part of the text here that are mocking Jesus, they reacted to this dying Savior in resentment, in rage, in anger, in frustration, in that mocking. And I think that's because the way that Jesus lived He lived such a life in which instead of fearing and responding to the comforts that he wanted for his life and fearing those who could take that away from him, he lived the life that those men aspired to or claimed to live. And so he made them to look as hypocrites. Have you ever... Felt that way about somebody where you had some rage or anger. You had some, some petty things you would say about another person. And it was really because they were living the way that you know you should be living. Can you relate to that idea, that concept these people here, That you see somebody and you say, wow, that's scary because I know that's what I should be doing. And so you find yourself either embracing that or you find yourself nurturing something, some resentment, some anger, some frustration, some fear, some rage inside of you. And this is what the religious leaders of the day who are here at this scene did. And this is why they wanted Jesus to die. Because all of the things that they saw about themselves that they didn't like were magnified around Jesus. And instead of crying out for mercy, they instead retreated into petty, small rage and anger. Just like us, just like we do. They weren't the only ones. There was literally a man hanging next to him on another cross. In verse 39, hurled an insult at Jesus saying, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Luke here uses the word criminal to describe this man. But the earliest gospel that we have is Mark, and Mark uses a different word. He uses the word rebel, or rebel. And in the Greek, that word has specific connotations, especially for this time. Uh, The the word here in the Greek is up on the screen. It's pronounced leis teis. Some uh, theologians tell us a little bit about the background of this word. It's very important for this situation. Uh, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. They tell us this, that Mark tells us that Jesus was crucified between two bandits. The Greek word translated bandits is commonly used for guerrilla fighters against Rome who were either terrorists or freedom fighters, depending upon one's point of view. Their presence in the story reminds us that the crucifixion was used specifically for people who systematically refused to accept Roman imperial authority. Ordinary criminals were not crucified. Jesus is executed as a rebel against Rome between two other rebels against Rome. I can imagine being that that criminal hurling insults at Jesus. I can imagine the amount of fear and rage and frustration he must have felt. Perhaps this man, this rebel, this bandit, this man dying for his sins against the government, perhaps he committed murders, perhaps he stole things. And in his mind, what he was thinking is, I need to take the power back from those who have taken it from me. No one's coming to save me. No one can save me. I can only save myself. And so I'm going to do what I have to do in order to extract from life what I want from it. Because no one else will give it to me and no one will have mercy on me. And then he sees a man next to him. A man that claimed to be that Savior, to be that Messiah, and yet he shares the same fate. He's dying. Again, the Savior is just there dying, weak, unable to save him, unable to save anyone. And that's how life had always been for that man. I can imagine it. And so even in his final hours, his mind and his heart are soaked with the frustration, with the anger and the rage of being powerless in life. You ever felt like that before? No one's looking out for me. No one is trying to have mercy on me. Nobody cares what I fall into, what I experience. So why should I have that for anyone else, even someone who could be God? Jesus' only response to these people is, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There's a different man on the other side of him. He says something different. But before we get to his call and his response, his asking for something of Jesus, like the other man was incapable of doing, I want to sit for one more moment in this sort of rage-filled response. I want to sit with this idea actually of hatred. Because I think as we nurture resentments and rage in our life, it begins to manifest itself in hate. We can see it all over our world. We can see it all over our culture. We can see the wars, both the actual and the uh, internet-based wars. We can see it in how we treat each other who are different ethnicities, races, skin colors, religions, political bents. And there's something that's valuable about hatred. There's something that can propel us and move us and energize us around hatred. We've all hated things, I've hated things. And we have to know that Jesus as a man could consider that as an option, that hatred could be a pathway forward for him to achieve his goals. But Jesus being who he was, he knew the limits of hatred. Similarly, I think, to what Howard Thurman in his book, The Jesus Jesus of the Disinherited, might have said. And I have this quote I want to read to you about his musings about hatred and hate. He said this, despite all the positive psychological attributes of hatred, hatred destroys finally the core of the life of the hater. While at last, burning in white heat, its effect seems positive and dynamic, but at last it turns to ash, for it guarantees a final isolation from one's fellows. It blinds the individual to all values of worth, even as they apply to himself and to his fellows. Hatred bears deadly and bitter fruit. It is blind and non-discriminating. True, it begins by exercising specific discrimination. This it does by centering upon the persons responsible for the situations, which create the reaction of resentment, bitterness, and hatred. But once hatred is released, it cannot be confined to the offenders alone. It is difficult for hatred to be informed as to objects when it gets underway. This was the situation of the man on the cross next to Jesus. He had used hatred as his fuel to do potentially good things, to save himself and maybe people like him. And yet the hatred did not recognize or distinguish the difference between an enemy and a savior. So he could not even think or imagine to ask for mercy because he was so consumed. Right following this quote, Howard Thurman, he shares an eerie and haunting example of this, that when he was a intern uh, in a college in Atlanta, Georgia, for the president, he was entertaining a guest while the guest was waiting to speak to the president. And this was pre-civil rights think in the 20s, he's a black man, the man who is waiting to speak to the president is a white man, and and the white man begins to talk to him about his life, just sharing things with Howard Thurman, and eventually he gets to this, the quotes on the screen as well, he says, eventually he began to talking about his two little boys, he said, among other things, I am rearing my boys so that they will not hate Negroes, don't misunderstand me, I do not love them. But I'm wise enough to know that if I teach my boys to hate Negroes, they will end up hating white people as well. I think that for tonight, as we consider Jesus on the cross and we talk about that Jesus died for our sins, I want us to think specifically about this idea of hate. I want you to use your imagination to imagine that the little resentments that you might stroke sometimes and try to foster when you are thinking about that person or that idea or that political party or that person of that certain religion or a president or congressman, that those things could have very well and could very well land you in a position of hate being described here, of the hate of the man on that cross. That in this way, we can imagine that we might, if life circumstances took us the wrong way, we might be that criminal, scoffing at a Savior, at a Messiah. Maybe, maybe you don't feel like you can relate to that in your life. Maybe, maybe you can relate more to the type of hate, and I do mean hate, of Pilate. You know, it's interesting. If you read from Jewish scholars, they will point out that here it looks as if Luke is saying Pilate is innocent of the, de- of the blood of Jesus and that the Jews are the one who executed Jesus. In fact, in church history, Pilate was eventually, a story about him uh, became popular enough that he was uh, given sainthood. The idea was that he found and was converted to Christianity. But Pilate is dismissive. He has an opportunity to provide mercy to Jesus, and he washes his hands literally of it. And I think in some way that is a type of hatred. It's a type of hatred that any of us can relate to. We are wealthy, we are Americans, and we are dismissive of things and practices of mercy that we have the power to show, but we disregard it. That's too hard to think about. It's too hard to think about how my decisions affect people in other countries. By the clothes I wear, by the things I buy, by what I prioritize in my newsfeed, And so maybe we can relate in that way to Pilate and his dismissiveness. Maybe we can see ourselves washing our hands of the death of a poor rabbi who was just causing too much trouble and inconvenience by messing up the way things were supposed to work, the way that things worked well for me. But there was another person there. There were the crowds, the religious leaders in the crowd. There was the other man on the cross. There was Pilate, but there was a man on his right as well. In verse 40, verse 43, it says this, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. I wonder, I wonder what it was. I wonder what it was. What, was, what is the difference between these two men hanging on either side of Jesus? What led one to scoff and to mock him out of fear and hate and the other to recognize God In a suffering man, beat bloody beyond recognition, heaving for breath. I wonder if he had heard about Jesus from his prison cell. I wonder wonder if when he was on Facebook, people were talking about him. I wonder when he logged onto his Twitter account, there were debates going on. But it all became different when he saw this man in person on a cross, that there was something divine about the way that he suffered. It wasn't something he expected to see, but there it was. He was so convinced by this man's suffering and the mercy he continued to show in it that he spoke to him out of the identity he claimed to have that had got him there in the first place. He spoke to him and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is troubling to me. It is troubling to me that perhaps one of the people that suffered the most who were privy to the audience of seeing this happen to Jesus was the only one who could see Jesus as God, is the only one who could see his suffering as divine. The man who potentially suffered more than surely these religious leaders did. Surely these political leaders, these soldiers who had gotten a great lot in life. We, we have crosses everywhere. That, that would be like if Jesus lived today, in 2,000 years, people were walking around with golden lynching trees or electric chairs around their necks or injection needles. Jesus was killed by the state. So we know there's something important about this. We, we have this sense that he died for our sins, but we don't see the divinity and the suffering so often. I don't. but suffering is the pathway to mercy. And to use Jesus' words, paradise. I think suffering can open up our imagination. I think it can give us compassion. I think we want to run away from it more than anything else in the world. And because of how wealthy we are, we have more opportunities to do that than, than maybe ever in human history. But if we sit in it, our imagination can grow. If we lean into the suffering of others and our own suffering, I think that we can begin to see something greater. Greater than just a transactional relationship that Jesus just got up on that cross and he just rang the cash register and now we're paid for and it's all over. Because that hasn't built a very compassionate American evangelicalism. If you want to know where the most people who are murdered by the states are, it's in the most Christian parts of the American South. So something about this divine suffering is not making it into our spirits and our hearts. God said, you guys are constantly blaming other people. You're constantly blaming other people for the fear and the hate and the rage inside of you, the things you refuse to feel. I'm going to come down there, and I'm going to show you a different way. I'm going to let you use me as a scapegoat. I'm going to show you once and for all that power doesn't have to be based off of fear and punishment. I'm going to let you kill me. I'm going to show you mercy on a level you have never experienced before you will kill God and not pay the consequences. This is mercy. In the Old Testament, the mercy of God is often referred to in a Hebrew word called, I'm gonna look at the screen and see. Still can't remember how to pronounce it. Chesed. It's close enough. Loving kindness. Loving kindness. This idea of not just, hey, you did something wrong, you won't have to pay the consequences, but loving kindness. Lavishly giving you good things. Paradise. He spoke to this man on the cross. You will be with me in paradise. This is what the world needs. This is what our world needs. People that understand this level of mercy, this loving kindness of a God who is, keeps showing us through this cross what loving kindness looks like, how it can stop the cycle We have examples of this in our world, lots of them. I wanna share one that hits close to home with us. In 2015, there was a a shooting, one of many in our country. Uh, June 17th in the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. It's the oldest African-American congregation in the South. Nine people were killed by a young man. And, and some of the survivors who were relatives, when, when they got a chance to speak, um, and actually the killer could, could hear them in the courts, they got a chance to speak. He was on a, a live video feed. I want, I want to read you some of their words, something that they had learned about mercy in their faith, in their life. Uh, Nadine Caller. Daughter of victim, Ethel Lance, she said, in the midst of many tears, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and I have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. A relative of Myra Thompson said, I would just like him to know that to say the same thing that was just said, I forgive him and my family forgives him. But we would like him to take this opportunity to repent, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so that he can change him and change your ways. So no matter what happens to you, you'll be okay. Felicia Sanders, mother of Tywanza Sanders, said, we welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with welcome arms. You have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts. And I'll never, I'll never be the same. Tywanza Sanders was my son, but he was also my hero. He was my hero. May God have mercy on you. And it keeps going. The little hates and the little resentments that we have in us, the dismissals that we have, can only be met by the mercy of this Savior that we profess to believe in and follow, who hung on a cross, somehow, in some way, in some mysterious way, paying for our lack of mercy and showing incredible mercy. I hope that we can begin more and more to embrace that mercy so that we can show it to others. Jesus was able to tell a man, you will be with me today in paradise, paradise now. Through mercy, we can cultivate that type of world.